Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon, and with me as always are Toby and Bon. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hey Simon. Today it's something of a Vaughn special, uh, with us diving back into our research and uh, going into a topic that she knows all, well pretty well at this point. Um, Vaughn, can you introduce the topic of today's show? Yeah. Um, so for those of you who have listened to us before, um, I'm currently studying Christmas films and Hollywood and the government interfering in the motion picture industry in 1947 and throughout the 1950s. Um, we're not going to talk about any of that, really. We're going to talk about something else that's featuring in my dissertation that's a bit of a sideline for it. Um, and that is Disney and Disneyland specifically and amu- amusement parks and theme parks as escapism in the 1950s. So um, can you just tell us how you kind of how this sort of fell into your research, um, the specific topics that fell into your research and how it kind of fits together with everything else you're looking at? Yeah. So when I applied to do a PhD originally, I wanted to look at this topic. I wanted to look at amusement parks and kind of mental escapism during the Cold War and the whole idea of how people coped with such existential threats as the atomic bomb. Um, How do you live after you have already seen the devastating effects of that? And now your country's enemies have that technology. How do you go on living a regular normal life? And a lot of that is about escapism and trying to interrupt your, your daily life and get away from it for a little bit. And that's why we see, as we'll get into more in a bit, a lot of entertainments coming out of the 1950s. We get this huge hike in television sets. We get um, a brief increase in cinema cinema going. We get a ton new films of different magnitudes. Um, And we get amusement parks. So originally I had really wanted to study this as my whole PhD, Uh, but then I got distracted with Christmas and I love Christmas, so I went down that route. Um, but I, I found that I can actually still work a lot of this in because of a 1961 film from Disney being Babes of Toyland, which essentially is a motion feature-length film of... Um, it's an advertisement for Disneyland, essentially. There isn't much more to the plot, and it's a very simplistic storyline, Mainly so Disney could put in cinemas an advertisement for Disneyland. Um, So I got to re-explore all of this kind of stuff in my current chapter that I'm writing right now. And we thought it would be fun to talk about it here on Impressions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So uh, do you want to just sort of take us through the topic then, Vaughn, and we'll we'll kind of just pick into questions as we go on it? Yeah, sure. Okay, so we're going to start with a bit of theory, which I know isn't everyone's favorite, but it's (laughs) really important to this topic, um, especially as I want to present it. So first, we're going to talk about heterotopias. 
Um, heterotopias are an idea from Foucault. And because it's an idea from Foucault, it is complex and kind of vague in parts. So we're going to define it here. Um, hetero, as a suffix, means different or other. And topia is the lived physical space. So a heterotopia is a, a different place. Um, it's also different from a utopia in that a utopia is generally an idealized, perfected, or intangible place, depending on which kind of uh, Greek tradition you're going to go with for the definition of utopia. But uh, it often lives in the imagination. It is not somewhere you can actually go. Whereas a heterotopia is a physical manifestation of a different worldly place. So for Foucault, Heterotopias are places located outside of the real world that take prescribed societal norms and invert them and challenge the dynamics of society by existing. So we can think of them like bubbles or like in the Simpsons movie, when a dome is placed over Springfield, it's part of the real world, but it is separated and distinct. And within it, within the dome, the outside world has no bearing. Um, it's subject to all the real kind of physical sciences of the real world outside of it, but it itself is a functioning challenge to society because it exists at all. So now let's keep that in mind when we discuss the dawning of amusement and theme parks within this idea of escapism into the parks in the 1950s. So the primary fundamental reason one would seek escapism is because you're experiencing stress, right? So the world and your life are too much. So you seek an escape somewhere else where you can pause your real life for a few moments and kind of recharge. One of the most stressful triggers for many people is the feeling of being out of control. Well, the Cold War, especially the earliest parts of the Cold War through the 1950s and into the 1960s were years of ordinary people feeling completely out of control. So in the 1950s, you had the atomic bomb uh, threats, and the atomic bomb was still so new. And the Rosenbergs had just been executed in 1953 on accounts of espionage for giving atomic secrets to the Soviets. Between 1947 and 1954, Joseph McCarthy was ramping up McCarthyism and fear-mongering that anyone among you, your neighbor, your grocer, your mailman, could be a communist. The Rosenberg's execution was just fuel for this fire. The idea that the Soviets were in possession of the atomic bomb paired with the idea that communists loathed Americans and were working against you at every level of personal interactions, local, state, and federal governments. They were in the military. They were on your cinema and TV screens. They were untrustworthy and dangerous and unhinged. It fed this fear that the Soviets could use the bomb on a whim at any time. And you personally were helpless against it. The Truman Doctrine was enacted in 1947, and it was a vow to deliver US military aid and support to those fighting communism. The Korean War lasted from 1950 to 1953. 
The House Committee on Un-American Activities was active in this period. The FBI investigations into potentially communist organizations ramped up in this period. There was Truman's loyalty order that all federal employee employees had to pledge their loyalty to the U.S. government and not a subversive organization. And other such kind of programs all reinforced this fear-mongering of the threats that communists were among you, walking around and ready to strike with their evil, quote-unquote, un-American ways. And worse, between HUAC and McCarthy and the loyalty order, you yourself could be alleged as a communist, and frequently you would be believed to be one, whether you refuted it or not. You were frequently seen as guilty by suspicion until proven innocent, and even still, your innocence was speculative at best. Um, blacklists, for example, were not only for Hollywood. Blacklists extended to other professions, namely here, education. Teachers were fired, uh, listed, and investigated all over the country for teaching quote-unquote un-American themes or histories or informing children about the world outside of the U.S., and the suspicion was not dissimilar to the teach to what teachers face today. Uh, although I would argue that the modern version of McCarthyism is much further reaching and much more effective, but that's a topic for another day and one we also discussed on Joy of Star Wars. All of this is to give a very limited scope of the existential threats at every level, personal, local, domestic, and foreign that people feared for their lives, their livelihoods, and their loved ones, feeling completely and totally out of control. So Elaine Tyler May is a historian of uh, domesticity and the Cold War. And May confronts this existential threat in her book, Homeward Bound, looking at American families and the nuclear family structure in the Cold War. May argues that the way many people coped with the atomic threat and the communist threat and the fear and the pressures, all of it, was by turning inward to the family. It did a dynamic that they could control. This turn inwards marked a, a return to traditional gender roles that had been disrupted with World War II and the post-war period. Many women took up jobs in factories and elsewhere in industries during the war effort and in the years after the war, a significant portion, though still a minority, of women stayed in the workplace. By the 1950s and the mounting of Cold War pressures, this began to decline again as the predominant narrative for safety, security, and to avoid suspicion was to conform into the mother, father, two and a half kids version of the nuclear family. Um, also interesting to note is that in this period, especially the late 1940s, immediately following the war, psychiatry as a field was like all the rage. People were psychoanalyzing one another and reading pseudoscientific books on how to raise kids or cope with the world or be a woman. Um, two interesting ones to note are Dr. Spock's The Common Sense Book of Baby and Child Care from 1946 and Modern Woman, The Lost Sex by Marinia Farnham and Ferdinand Lundberg in 1947. In the former Dr. Spock's book, 
women were taught that every child is special and individual and to not be afraid to trust their own common sense when it comes to their children. He also emphasized love and affection over strict punishments. This book sold half a million copies in six months. We can read a lot into boomers by analyzing that book, but we can leave that for another time. Um, the other book, Modern Woman, told women that any deviation, any from traditional gender norms, especially women in the workplace, was a psychosis of society and had to be stopped. So I'm coming to my point, I promise. We have all of these pressures on people, especially women, coming out of the Cold War. And I wanna propose stretching May's theory on the evolution of the nuclear family and focus on the domestic sphere as a place within which one can exert control and suggest that it can be elastic. Domesticity doesn't have to solely be in the home, but it can be anywhere using May's theory where you can exert control over the family. With Dr. Spock's teachings of love and affection for your kids, we see child-centric spaces springing up all over the country as well. And here's how we get back to entertainments and amusements. The 1950s were a very hot time for amusement parks. You get Paul Bunyan Land in Minnesota and Children's Fairyland in Oakland, California, both in 1950. Uh, Marine Land was a precursor to SeaWorld in Los Angeles in 1954. There are so many examples, but none are more important or more influential than Disneyland opening in Anaheim, California in 1955. I'll leave that there for a moment. Do you guys have any questions around that? How was Disneyland different from other theme parks that came before it? And how did Disney's social reach through other forms of media heighten the impact of Disneyland? So that's a great question. Um, for the first one, how it differed from other amusement parks before it, and also those around the same time. Um, the 1950s isn't the first time that we see a kind of explosion of amusement parks in US history. So at the turn of the century in the late 1890s and early 1900s, um, we see a lot of amusements coming about and they are in the form of Steeplechase Park and Luna Park, um, Coney Island, other such parks like that, that interestingly were all in urban settings. Um, the idea around that is that public transit could get you to them very quickly and that people living within the city could take advantage of them. And around that time, um, we see a really interesting thing happening with culture and especially dating culture that you can actually like leave the home to go on a date because there, there is a place that is affordable and accessible by public transit for people who live in a city. The thing about Disneyland is that it was not in a city, it was in Anaheim, which was a mostly suburban area in California, if fairly sparsely populated. Um, Disney had sent out a contractor with the Stanford Research Institute to do a land survey and find a place where he could put, I believe it was 12 miles of a park um, that wouldn't butt up against residential areas or highways or 
anything that could disrupt this heterotopic vision that he had for Disneyland, that it would be a world unto itself within the real world. Um, so that structurally, having it be displaced and outside of everything else was a really important factor for Walt Disney. And that definitely makes it very different from Steeplechase and Luna and Coney uh, and all of those other turn-of-the-century kind of traditional parks because that makes it a bit more exclusive. But interestingly, Disneyland never had a segregation policy. So it was accessible to anyone who could afford to go. Now, that does have other ramifications of classism that can also fall on racial disparity lines. Um, I don't know that the statistics for that actually exist to know what the demographics of park goers were. They may exist, but that is not something that factors into my research within my, my chapter because that's just a bit outside of my scope for what I'm doing with Babes in Toyland. But Disney was accessible. And a huge way that it was even more accessible to everyone was that Walt himself had conceived of this brilliant media strategy to promote Disneyland. And that feeds into your second question there. The media strategy for Disneyland was cross-promotional across all Disney products. And when we, we think of it, like that doesn't sound like that much, but when you really get into the, the details of it, Disney in the 1950s, had the cinema operations and film and print media with comic books and also children's books and comic strips in newspapers. They also had merchandising and um, like plushes and toys and whatnot. They had media tie-ins with um, department stores for all of their films. And then they also had the parks. And because it was the 1950s, when TV was steadily becoming much more popular and more accessible and affordable for more homes in the US, Disney also had a television show specifically for Disneyland. Disney had already had several TV shows by that point when they started uh, the Disneyland show in 1954, and it ran until 1958, um, was quite different from the other forays into television that Disney had um, and continued to be. Like in 1955 to 1959, there was the Mickey Mouse Club that had 25 million viewers a week, but Disneyland amassed 50 million viewers a week. And what Disneyland was, the television show, was an advertisement for the parks. And in each episode, uh, one a week from October 54, Disney would himself be in one of the parts of the park. So Disneyland had um, Frontierland, Tomorrowland, Adventureland, and Fantasyland. And the park wasn't open yet in October 1954. But Disney, by setting his show there, and exploring the different lands of the park was starting to get all of these kids who were watching these 50 million viewers a week excited for the park 
for a year before it opened. Um, and it was a brilliant move. They would bring on like characters from the films, the live action films, and then also animated characters that they kind of spliced into it. And they would have musical numbers and occasional kind of animated sequences of uh, like Disney shorts with the Mickey Mouse whole crew. And this show was so innovative because it was one of the only shows on television at the time that was pre-recorded. Almost every other broadcast in the early 1950s was a live broadcast. And by pre-recording it and adding in the animated sequences and all of these things, they kind of revolutionized what you could do with television at the same time. Um, it aired on ABC because ABC was in kind of financial straits at the time. And Disney offered this show and said, like, look, you'll be all new and exciting if we pre-record it and you won't be live. So, like, you'll cut down on live costs as well. And you just have to give us $500,000 and then also guarantee a bank loan of $4.5 for the parks. But it'll be great. And ABC accepted this because they had no other kind of income coming in. So they put this massive uh, front-loaded investment down and ABC is still part of Disney. I think Disney acquired it. I don't know the year, but Disney acquired ABC later on. So also in 1954, Disney for tax purposes established Disneyland Incorporated as its own separate company with Walt as the CEO. So his brother Roy couldn't make any decisions on Disneyland or the parks or any other, like on the television show, any Disneyland property was specifically Walt's. And with Walt as the CEO and president of Disneyland Incorporated, he made a board comprised of representatives from both ABC and Western Printing and Lithographing Company. And they're the ones who made the books and the games and the puzzles and the comic books for over 20 years. So the Disneyland committee was specifically made up of Walt from the, the film side, uh, ABC from the TV side, and the executives from his printing company. This was unheard of uh, at the time, and it really set apart Disneyland from any other amusement park that there could be because they already had all of this cultural standing as being Disney that no other park would ever be able to match until I guess Star Wars land, which is also part of Disney. So Galaxy's Edge in Disney World, maybe the Harry Potter park, but JK Rowling went and fucked that. So yeah, Disneyland is just this massive kind of overhaul of what you can do with an entertainment property um, and it really, really stood very far apart from anything we had seen before with Steeplechase and Luna and Coney and all of those parks. So the the Disneyland of 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 that time of the fifties, obviously Disney, the company had been able to to sell themselves as a, a family friendly company through things like the Snow White animated films and um, and, and things like that. Do you think? Um, 
Disneyland was I'm kind of getting the impression for here Disneyland was as much about trying to establish the brand and build a relationship with customers as it was as a as a sort of money making entity in its own right is that kind of fair to say like the monetary side is maybe almost sort of secondary to it I'm kind of getting that impression or or is that unfair I think that is fair um Walt himself, when it came to his company, had a philosophy that you have to spend money to make money. Mm-hmm. He was also like a micromanager. So he was all over every aspect of animation and the parks and everything until they got too big and then he couldn't micromanage. And then it became a whole thing with unions and he was fighting them and it was it was a real mess. Um, Walt Disney isn't a good person, by the way. But... <laughs> Um, I would say that with the parks, especially these were his like brainchild, like Walt Disney wanted even more than Disneyland. Mm -hmm. And when a a developer had offered to buy land that was like just outside Disneyland, he absolutely Mm -hmm. had a meltdown because he didn't want anyone near his park. So the kind of extended idea that he had is what we're kind of seeing now with the Disney Country Club communities that are that started uh, development last year. I don't know if anybody saw this, but there's there are a few like kind of gated communities around the U.S. I think there's one in like New Mexico and one in California um, and a couple other places that would be entirely Disney home communities. And they're like heterotopias because everything is Disney themed. Like it's like living at one of the resorts. And Disney's idea went even further than that. Like that's something that's happening right now in 2022. But what Disney wanted was an entire functioning town unto itself, which is why Walt Disney World in Florida has some kind of sovereign rights and legal protections as its own entity its own land um that some things like florida does or the federal government does don't actually apply to disney world and this is because of walt's vision for an entire utopia of disney people that it wouldn't just be the parks it would be the parks and amusements and cinema but it would also be the imagineers as scientists living in this community and coming up with the new innovations for the world and doing scientific research and scholars living there studying whatever Disney approves. And it would be a whole residential area, but also a city and also have a monorail running through it and its own public transit system. He at one point wanted his own currency within this town. Um, and he envisioned them going up all over the country as kind of a alternative to suburbia, which is mental. <laughs> like that's a yeah. bit of an absurd kind of thing that, that Walt Disney wanted to kind of make his own utopian countries, like sovereign nations within the US and around the country. Um, 
but he had to settle for Disneyland in California at the time. So it was his like passion project. And I think obviously he was an incredible businessman and knew what he was doing, um, targeted the youngest communities, knew how to market to every age group in any format, whether it was the the print or the film or the, the parks. Um, he absolutely knew that it would be a moneymaker, but he also knew that it was his kind of philosophical dream coming true to an extent. So I don't think his main priority was just profiting off the parks. It was definitely using it as a cog in the machine, the Disney machine, to promote the films and to promote the toys and the games and the comic books and everything would be an inner working media strategy with a physical tangible place that you could escape to during the cold war it was really brilliant you ever i mean as as someone who studies film and thinks about uh media and kind of where we are today and the journey we've been through over the 20th century do you ever kind of consider the the importance of something like disneyland in the increased intellectual property world that we live in now in the 21st century and kind of consider the impact of something like Disneyland in placing IP into the the mainstream and and presenting that as part of the sort of um, media or or everyday media for for ordinary people? Yes, excellent question. So I'm going to give a bit of history before I answer it fully, but yes. Um, In 1948, there was something called the Paramount Accords. And I believe I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, but to put it really simply, the Paramount Accords were a Supreme Court case um, against Paramount that the vertical integration system of Hollywood, which means that the studios owned the production rights and the distribution rights, and then also the merchandising rights, of a film property was unconstitutional because that's a monopoly. The the studios could not also own the cinemas was the result of this decision. So what that did was allow um, independent filmmakers more kind of opportunity to actually get into cinemas because before the Paramount Accords, it would be... um, that Paramount owned X number of cinemas in along the East Coast and um, Columbia, say, owned Y number along the East Coast. And every time Paramount put out four films at a time, their cinemas would only show those or have an exhibitioner fee that was ex- exorbitantly high that independent filmmakers could not pay but Columbia probably could. So Paramount and Columbia's cinemas would get an exhibitionist fee for, uh, that's a different thing, exhibitioner's fee for um, their films in each other's cinemas and independent filmmakers couldn't afford to be shown at mainstream cinemas. And that's why you have like art house cinemas and things like that. After the Paramount Accords, there were, 
structures in place that cinemas were privately owned. So they could charge up to an amount for a major studio and up to an amount for independent filmmakers. Uh, and it brought more equity to the distribution of film. What that meant for Disney was that Disney couldn't own cinemas. And that was Disney's kind of plan, was own everything within the vertical integration system as was kind of tradition in Hollywood. That was just how it was done. So while other studios were trying to figure out how they kind of match their profits after that, and this is the start of the kind of decline of the studio era, Disney went, fine, just make a park. <laughs> we'll just put everything into a park so it's not technically distribution. It's just us using the property that we have and the film characters that we own the rights to and just using them in a different context. They're not on film anymore, so it can't technically be called cinema distribution. So Walt's plans for Disneyland actually started in 1948, immediately after the Paramount Accords. Um, I think they broke ground in 1952 on the parks, but he started the like uh, investigations for it and drawing up blueprints in the late 1940s as a response to this. So what that has to do with intellectual property is that Disney was thinking of the film products and the film characters and everything that goes along with films like Cinderella or uh, Treasure Island or Alice in Wonderland as things that were mutable. You could change them and use them in different ways and still technically be legal. Uh, Disney's first actual television appearance was on Christmas Day in 1950. And it was a one-hour special called One Hour in Wonderland that was a first look at the very like anticipated Alice in Wonderland that came out in 1951. So he was branching into all of these different areas as a way to step aside the Paramount Accords and milk money from his properties. And that's now where we get, like following that through to now is what we think of as intellectual property. Um, George Lucas in 1977 similarly revolutionized how we think of intellectual property, to use our modern term for it, when he made the deals for um, taking the merchandising costs of the, the toys that came out of Star Wars and completely changed the game on that front as well. So between like Disney and Star Wars, um, they're, they're the two most important things in the 20th century for developing the, the term that we now see as intellectual property. So yes, I do think that, Simon. So just on, um, kind of going back to what, what you mentioned previously as far as the, sort of the main body of, of, your, of your proposal there, um, I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit more on the media side of things and compare how Disney's overall media strategy and consumer engagement was different to its competitors during the 50s and 60s? Yeah, so um, 
as I said, the, the the Disney approach was to kind of milk the the intellectual property that you could. Um, other studios, especially in reaction to the Paramount Accords, they were kind of struggling to figure out what to do uh, for the same profits that they were getting. And there are two things that kind of come into this. Um, well, there are many things that come into this, but the first one is that they were at a disadvantage because of the baby boomer generation. And the baby boom happened between 1946 and 1964, where there were 75 million babies born in that 18 year period. Um, that was the largest generation at the time. And by like tens of millions, like we didn't know what to do with all of these babies. So cinemas and studios were kind of at a disadvantage because now like every adult was a parent um, and they couldn't just kind of like have date night, right? They had to factor in the kids as well. So Disney was really at the advantage because they marketed to kids and they knew how to market to kids. Um, it became the industry's like most lucrative kind of marketing strategy because they had a guaranteed brand. Like Disney was family friendly. You could always count on going to a Disney film and being able to show your kid kind of wholesome, high quality, uh, family friendly, although many times racist and stereotypical content that like white people were happy to show their kids. This became even more important in the 1960s when other filmmakers um, were facing even more of a challenge because of this kind of disadvantage of the baby boom generation when the Hayes Code ended. Um, and the Hayes Code, as we've talked about before as well, was the purity guidelines for films that they had to like meet certain, like social norms essentially, and like puritanical values uh, to be shown on film. So when the Hayes Code ended, there was no kind of guarantee that film content would be appropriate um, until the ratings era started in 1968. And that's the MPIA ratings that we still kind of use today in a different iteration of them, but we still use them. So Disney was a guarantee that it was a safe film to show your family. Um, in the kind of decline of the studio era also, because independent filmmakers were able to get their films shown and they had lower budgets, studios decided that what they would do to combat those competitors was highlight their, their larger budgets by making absolutely massive budgets for films that we think of as epics, which would be like Ben-Hur and Spartacus. Um, the Ten Commandments, all of those like massive historical films were because the studios 
felt they had to show how massive they were and how important they were and that they were a social good showing history and moral stories um, with massive budgets. So that in the time was also a disadvantage to them because they were spending even more money and they thought that it was like something that like the young and the old could both get behind, but people weren't interested in that. Um, especially people with children, they couldn't bring their kids to go see Ben-Hur. So a mm. lot of the time, sorry, Simon. No, no, I was just going to say, yeah, that, that's understandable that uh, they, they weren't able to to bring in, in children to see those sort of action epics. Sorry, I was just... Yeah, they were like bloody historical films that you would not take like a toddler to. Um, so a lot of the times parents stayed home and turned on the TV instead. And what was on the TV was Disney. So like the cross media integration for Disney was just the probably most important thing that really turned the Disney company around. Um, they had a lot of financial failures in the 1940s leading up to the 1950s when Cinderella was released and Cinderella grossed um, nearly $8 million after cinema rentals, which completely wiped their $4.2 million debt that they had accrued through the 40s. And then that same year, they also released uh, Treasure Island, which was wholly live action. Um, and that grossed $4.8 million, which had to be split with RKO Studios because it, it was a collaborated production and release with RKO. Um, but their, their financial system completely changed in 1950. And then throughout all of this, all of these forays into television and print and like comics and radio and games and the parks and all of these things, they were just raking in money from so many different sectors while the studios were struggling and pumping way too much money into the epics that had great attendance and they did make a lot of money but it, it was nowhere near what disney was doing um disney also has this added advantage with the baby boomers specifically that snow white came out in 1937 so the kids in the depression era who saw snow white and had this really positive association with uh a color animated film seeing something that like kind of fun for the first time in 1937 at the peak of the depression or not the peak but like towards the end of the depression and right before the war they were all the parents of the baby boomers because of that kind of 15 year gap between them so yeah, Disney just nailed it. And every other every other studio was at kind of structural disadvantages and then also made kind of poor decisions on how they were going to react to the change in population and to um, the advent of television, to the Paramount Accords, all of these things. Whereas Disney just made a series of really brilliant decisions. I think it'd be fair to say from what you're saying as well that even if other companies perhaps had been making films 
such as you know Snow White or um, other films that sort of hit, um, they probably would have been unlikely to think in the way um, Walt did and create theme park and, and sort of branch out in, in this this broader way. It d- does feel as if he's, <laughs> without trying to have a sort of great man theory on this, he does seem a somewhat singular figure at the time as far as how he was thinking about media. I think that's fair. Um, I don't think anyone else could have had the reach of Disney at the time, especially because Disney already existed. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think, though, that Disney himself is not a great man. I think he's evil. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I would hesitate to say that. Sure. I, th- I think we can agree he maybe wasn't a great person, but he was yeah. at least able to achieve things um, that on a, a pure business level was um, did make him stand out from the crowd. Um, oh, brilliant capitalist. Mm-hmm. Absolutely brilliant at exploitation. Really killing it on that front. Um, That's why they sponsor today's podcast. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Vaughn, could you explain her further? Um, what the I think maybe like social philosophy of like Walt Disney was at, at the theme parks, especially in the context of like the Cold War, and, and you mentioned like um, people having more children, and then people were scared of um, the threat of communism. They're scared of nuclear war. Like, what was the ex- actual escapism that Disney wanted to provide, or at least thought that he was? providing and then what what, what what was this kind of social outlook right um so within the parks much like at vegas there were few clocks like you couldn't tell the time while you were there so that's part of like an escapist mentality that you are literally escaping. You have no idea what's going on outside of the world or even what time it is. And you also couldn't get newspapers within Disneyland. Um, so that was part of the total seclusion of the land that it's in the world, but it's not. It's the happiest place on earth. Um, the kind of social philosophy within it was that everyone was welcome and everyone would be treated equally there. Whether that was the case and whether that is the case now is up to kind of individuals and the actual experiences within the parks. But his philosophy for it was that everyone is welcome and everyone is treated equally within the parks. Um, that kind of happiness, essentially, that he was he was looking for that utopianism that he was looking for in his heterotopia um, is the escapism because there's, there's no question or like suspicion that somebody's a communist within Disneyland because you're not like allowed to have bad thoughts essentially while you're there was the philosophy. And that promise that you didn't have to fear the people around you was really compelling really compelling for people at the time disney's personal philosophy was different from that um he absolutely hated unions and did not think that people were equal in any way he was very classist um 
did not understand the well that's that's a that's a philosophical question of whether he understood the plights of his workers or whether he was ignoring them um i would tend to probably say that he was ignoring the issues that they were raising within the the organization um which were largely on pay and job security and contracts and all of the standard things that unions are fighting for especially his animators um he also definitely didn't believe that women were equal uh within the disney organization women were not allowed to be animators because it was seen as too difficult of a job for women so they were the colorists they would color in the frames for the films but they wouldn't actually do any of the animation or they were secretaries um disney also had a weird dynamic with his wife and kids where they would literally never talk about his work ever <laughs> like it was very very rare that disney walt disney himself would talk to his family about what he does all day which is really weird because he's selling this whole concept of the happy family and the nuclear family and he had two kids and just never let them like talk about the parks or the films or like what new things he was working on um they also had very few kind of Disney products in their home, uh, except for in his home office. So that's kind of a weird one as well. In terms of communism, um, he was ardently anti-communist. Um, Disney thought that the union organizers were corrupted by communism. And he was silent in all of the kind of Hollywood meetings. He was there and he was a founding member of um, some of the Hollywood factions that were fighting communism within the motion picture industry, but he never spoke at those meetings because he didn't want to corrupt his own brand, essentially, um, with either going one way or the other on super anti-communist or pro-communist. But he did appear at a HUAC um, hearing as their kind of star witness on a Friday in October, 1947, that, and he testified that um, one of his former employees was a communist, like undoubtedly a communist because he organized the union um, strikes in the early 1940s. And that man says that it was not a personal vindiction kind of thing, vindictive thing. Um, Disney was just reporting what he thought and that man's career didn't really suffer from it because he had left the whole animating and Disney sector by that time and he was working in New York. Um, so the, the communist allegations didn't really touch him that much or affect his life. So he didn't take it very harshly, but like I would. <laughs> like He really testified against this man and said that he was a communist organizer at a time when that's an extremely dangerous fucking thing to say and allege against someone. Um, so Disney himself, his worldview was not that everyone was created equal. Um, he also, I mean, if you look at any of his early films, he was also racist incredibly um, mm -hmm. and made racist content um, 
but within the parks, the, the social philosophy was that everyone is happy. Everyone is safe. You don't know what's going on in the outside world and everyone is created equal. And, and just, uh, just shortly, um, uh, and to what extent did, did, did his, uh, social or personal philosophy feed into the, into the actual media content that people are absorbing in the parks as opposed to, you know, like the general idea that people are equal, people should be safe. Um, you know, there are, there's no, um, denouncing people as communists. Like how did that feed into the, the content that was generated at the time? Hmm. As you know, cause they, you know, they had the ABC show and uh, a number of movies were made at, in that period. I mean, I, they're basically, they're, they are quite, you know, standard myths and, and parables and stories that he was taking from other content. But, like, to what extent is that, like, do any of those kind of social ideals feed into the into those things that people were, were taking from Disney at the time? That's a good question. Um, I would say that he tended to keep his personal politics out of media um, to an extent. I mean, a lot of it is very racist and Song of the South and um, other such examples. He did also use Disney for war bonds during World War II. And in early Disney media, there was a short about um, communism and unionizers. And it was, it was about a chicken or a hen that was organizing like the chicken coop to keep their eggs um, so that the owner, the, the farmer could not like profit off them. And it was how that chicken was kind of evil. But that was the only short of Disney's that was like anti-communist. And it was from the, the 1920s uh, during the first Red Scare. So that's a really interesting kind of glance in that there are some examples of Disney that are his personal kind of politics coming into it. But I would say, especially in the 50s, you get films like Cinderella and Treasure Island. Um, you get the shows, the Mickey Mouse Club and Disneyland. And there's Alice in Wonderland as well. And I think they're all very kind of happy ending films. Um, Treasure Island is the live action one that they, they do. And that is so different from reality that it's also kind of fitting into this make-believe land that he's, he's trying to portray with Disneyland. Um, and then with Disneyland and the Mickey Mouse Club show, they were both this real kind of idealized version of the world. So I think the philosophy of happy endings really plays into a lot of Disney's media, especially in the 1950s. And the idea of a fantasy land, that there is something better, like the world could be a better place and it's at Disneyland. Um that's really the backbone of a lot of media that comes out of the 1950s from Disney, um, especially Babes in Toyland. Like I said at the top, it's an entire film about living in this fantasy land. And in the film, it's Mother Goose Land. 
and then they go to Disneyland or to rather Toyland. Um, but both kind of towns and versions are these like really colorful, fun places uh, that are almost entirely populated by children. And the bad guy in it gets his comeuppance and all of those things. So I would say that the the escapism, the idea that there is an other place, there's there is a heterotopia that is better and safer and people are welcome and there are always happy endings. I think that's the through line for the social philosophy within the media. Did that answer your question? Oh, no, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, one question I had for you, Vaughn, was could you maybe tell us how Disney used the sexist and the stereotypical representation of women and family dynamic to sell the wholesomeness of, of um, the Yes. So this again feeds into that kind of pre-ratings era idea of Disney, that it was a safe brand. And it also feeds into Elaine Tyler May's um, assertion that like, this is when the nuclear family was being born, right? So all of those kind of stereotypical and what we view now as sexist depictions of women were very frequently like the gender roles of the time and what they were hoping women would be essentially um so you get like cinderella who is cleaning all day and doing her sewing and taking on all of these kind of traditional roles within the home and she's just like wanting a husband she just wants to get married that's like playbook 1950s right um alice in wonderland you get this little girl who wants to use her imagination and have like all of this fun and go on an adventure adventure but she never actually leaves home in the film um and that's also what you want you want a woman who stays in her place um there's a really interesting kind of argument that is also made that's one of my favorites and i make my students read it every year is around disney's villains that's much more interesting. Um, Disney's villainesses, especially in the early years, are extremely sexy. And that is on purpose. Um, the villains, like, you get, like, Maleficent and you get um, the, well, the wicked stepmother and the, the evil stepsisters are not necessarily super sexy. But they are... Um, very dominant characters. They're very dominant women. And the historical research on this is that Disney had a little bit of a submission kink sexually. <laughs> so he made all of his, his villainesses um, dominatrixes, <laughs> essentially. And that place that makes a lot of sense with the gender dynamics of the time because a strong independent unmarried um powerful woman dominating woman is not what you want out of your women in the 1950s you want your cinderella who's going to cook and clean all day and then like beg to marry 
a man. You don't want the wicked stepmother who is financially independent. So that's that's a really compelling argument and well-researched. Um, I'm blanking on the author's name of that article at the moment, but it's called um, Disney's Sexy Villainesses, I believe. Um, really amazing article. I'll post it on Twitter later. But... I distracted myself with the sex. This was about... <laughs> this was about how Disney used sexist and stereotypical representation, representation of women right. and the family dynamic to sell the wholesomeness to their... Right. So that wholesomeness um, of those like female heroines in those who aren't really the heroines because they ultimately are saved every time by a man, which again, what you want in like the gender roles of the 1950s, that's also kind of part of that escapism that I mentioned earlier with Elaine Tyler May and normalizing the nuclear family and those traditional gender roles, um, reintroducing them to society and saying like that older woman who stayed at her factory job and now has her own income and her husband has died. She's, she's an evil witch. Don't trust her. But the beautiful young Cinderella who has been working in the home this whole time, like she deserves a prince. It, was, it wasn't sexist at the time and it wasn't really stereotypical. They were making it stereotypical and reinforcing that these are the gender norms that we want to see in society. So we can condemn them now, but at the time that was just exactly what Hollywood was looking to portray in their films. That is interesting. Um, I only had one question left, um, which is maybe slightly sort of future thinking, maybe maybe less specific to, to uh, what we've just been talking about. Um, is there anything else we want to um, go into prior to me asking that question? Either from Toby or from yourself on. I think I've covered everything widely that I've wanted to. Um, so the last question I had, which is maybe a little bit more difficult to answer, but it was in relation to the theme parks today and the relationship between Disney and what's happening in Florida with um, Ron DeSantis and the, the kind of anti-woke um sentiment that's coming out of the republicans right now and comparing that to walt disney and his place both um sort of helping you know the government you know uh, various um various trials but also just his relationship with like the fbi and and his willingness to sort of or or willingness and want to show like fbi agents in good light and the fact he would show scripts of like TV shows to like willingly um, show scripts of like TV shows to to the FBI to get feedback on things. I was just wondering how, as someone who sort of studies this history and knows about Walt Disney, do you have any thoughts on how this transformation has happened and how Disney has, or how Disney is trying to keep on top of, of being something that is both wholesome um, and also dealing with the sort of, um, social and political um, changes that have happened in the 21st century and how, um, first of all, inclusion was 
sort of seen as something that is beneficial to Disney and, and, and is now something which they're sort of getting a hit over the head with on the Republican side and trying to take that into account when you consider Disney as it was when Walt first created in his relationship with, with the government. That is a massive question. Um, very much is. Um, yeah. I, I know that, that that's that's kind of why I left at the end. I just wanted to see if there was kind of no, any any fair. sort of final thoughts as, as to yeah. anything that kind of springs to mind around that. Yeah, so my first thought would be that mm, I think Disney would be a little disappointed with how Disney is being run now, mm-hmm. but also massively approving of it. Really? Because... I think, like, as I said, Disney himself was politically quite conservative. Um, and his villains were what we would see as very sexy and what he probably personally would see as very sexy. But they were also these kind of, like, the evil sides of, like, what you don't want a woman to be. Um, and that's why they were always women, because you couldn't paint a man as a bad guy. So now like after that era of kind of like dominating women the the villains shifted into um gender bent and queer coded villains Mm -hmm. so you get villains like um captain hook and um king john is an emasculated man from well he's a lion but from um sorry prince john from robin hood in the 70s um you get like jafar from aladdin and ursula who was specifically um designed after a drag queen i was gonna say ursula's maybe the one that immediately springs to mind when, when talking about that yeah and you you get all of these kind of like queer coded villains in the kind of post-fem lib movement because women can be strong now so you need a new villain right but then in like the late 90s and early 2000s people were like why are these villains all queer coded what what are we doing why are we saying that queer people are bad so for the last few disney films there've been kind of strong very toxic men who are the villains um you have like hans from frozen and like mm. this isn't this isn't like perfectly delineated like in 91 you get gaston in beauty and the beast and he's a toxic male uh villain as well but th- those are co- the kind of like broad strokes of like how the disney villains have developed and i think disney would be disappointed that the villains now are normally like capitalists and men um, who are seeking more power and more money. With everything else, I think he'd be incredibly proud that they like bought Star Wars and Marvel and they're just Mm. raking in the money. Um, And I think even Walt Disney himself, especially Walt Disney himself, he would say, go where the money is. And you put on screen what what the money is, where the market is. You market to whoever is going to be the most profitable consumer, not necessarily customer, 
but consumer, like children are consumers. They're not customers because they're not actually paying for the thing, but they're consuming the thing. So you need to convince consumers who have people who will buy the thing for them. That was the whole Disney brand. Um, And now the consumer market is overwhelmingly uh, liberals or left-leaning or just progressive people in terms of like one social thing or another. Like maybe someone's quite racist, but they also are defending the working class or maybe someone um, is super against like police brutality like you see in Marvel. And they like they're the the largest consumer group at the moment is left-leaning progressives. Why do you um, think that much- is? Why do you think that I is? I think more like- people are. I think more people are progressive now. I think we have bigger problems than um worrying that a trans person is in your bathroom, but the people who do worry about a trans person in your bathroom are the loudest people. But they're not actually that big of a group. Like in like they're dangerous and they're the ones kind of in power at the moment and I'm not belittling that at all, but I don't think they're the largest consumer group by far. Um I think yeah, consumers why does a consumer group uh, change from consumers who aren't customers who are children to people who must be adults to have progressive views? Why, 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 why does that change happen? That's a good question. Um, well, I think there's some give and take there, right? That like you market it towards children, but you also have to convince the the parents that it's good for the children, for them to buy it for their child. Um, so there is some give and take. Uh, I was too black and white in what I said before. Um, and I think more parents want their kids to be exposed to more progressive things. Um, and like I say progressive, but like one of the most recent arguments was that in the Baymax show on Disney Plus, they showed Baymax buying pads. And they're like, you can't tell children about periods. And it's like nine-year-olds have periods though. So what are, what are we talking about here? Like they're fucking children. Um, so like progressive is really just kind of reality in my mind. And I think more people want reality in their media content, especially if it is for children especially because people like Ron DeSantis are banning books and enacting laws that you can't talk about reality um, to children in schools and in like workplaces and stuff. So I think like, I do think that the, the larger consumer market is looking for consumer and customer market is looking for something that's educational on the real world for their kids. Um, while still being this kind of fantasy land piece, if that makes sense. Like, I think it's a really, really interesting dynamic for Disney that started out as this kind of heterotopic escapism as being this otherworldly thing where it could be the real world, but better. And that's still the market that they're going for. That's still the branding identity that they're going for that. Like we're still presenting things that you experience in the real world but in a softer, safer place where you can understand them better. 
Um, and I think, I think conservatives are really losing that battle because they want to shield you from so many things. They want to shield children from so many things that like, they don't, they don't have the, the studio for it. Like they're, they're a market that doesn't have a studio because Disney is going where the money is. I don't think Disney has a particular kind of political philosophy. It took them a very long time to stand with their employees um, against the don't say gay bill. So I think like Disney is still very much like Walt Disney um, who didn't speak in the anti-communist meetings in Hollywood because he didn't want to be seen as going one way or the other or pro-communist or anti. I think Disney as a company is still trying to play both sides and be like, oh, we're not like woke woke until they actually have to be forced to take a side because their their workers are striking. Um, but with the media, again, I think that they're they're playing to the market. And I think Disney himself would be pretty proud about that because that that was his whole thing was building the market and building the brand to ensure the market stays with you. That was a very good answer. Thank you, Vaughn. I know that was a very difficult one to be sort of just dropped on and um, there's lots of different directions we can go in that. Um, hmm. I'm probably same where we're close to being done now um i did just have one final thing which was i was going to read you a, a quote which um is someone who wasn't um so keen on uh mickey mouse and um i just want to see if you had if you could guess who it was that gave this quote that's okay it's not me it's it's not no um it, it's it's i can confirm it's definitely not toby the most miserable idea ever revealed the dirty and filth-covered vermin, the greatest bacteria carrier in the animal kingdom, cannot be the ideal type of animal. Down with Mickey Mouse. I just want to realize uh, it again, it's not me. It's not Toby, no. <laughs> Is it going to be it... a shocking one? Uh, I mean, kind of, yeah. Mm. It, it's not Trey Parker or Matt Stern, is it? It's not, no. Okay, good. Is it like, is it Hitler? It's Adolf Hitler in 1931. Um, he also Wild. tried to get he tried to get really? Mickey, Mickey ba- Mouse banned in 37 as well when it came out in cinema. Wow. Um, and um, Walt Disney replied, uh, uh, Mr. A. Hitler, the Nazi <laughs> old thing, says that Mickey's silly. Imagine that. Well, Mickey's going to save Mr. A. Hitler from drowning or something someday. Then won't Mr. A. Hitler be ashamed? So, um, yeah. Disney said Mickey was going to save Hitler? What? Yeah, I'm not sure at which point this was, you know, sort of prior to Hitler taking power or anything. I I, I don't have an exact date on that. But uh, yes, apparently Mickey was going to save him, him from drowning or something. That's, that's, that's they, they, they were a big party in '31, so yeah. but they yeah. were, but he wasn't like the Führer. Exactly. So well, he was, he was like, Times Man of the Year at some yeah. point in the '30s, wasn't mm-hmm. he? So, um, <laughs> so there you go. well, there you go. interesting one to end on. 
thought we'd end on Hitler, just like we do with most our episodes. Uh, right. Okay, well... Um, He's um, not Hitler. At least he that. He's not Hitler. It's not Hitler. Oh, I should have tried to dig up a Richard Nixon quote. I'm sure he would have loved this in the world. Nah, probably not. That's all right. I think there is a picture of Nixon at Disneyland. Yeah. <laughs> I think there is. Because he, he's from California, right? Yeah, that, that's where he's from. Yeah. yeah. I think he took his kids to Disneyland and there's like a picture of it. What a beautiful image. Just uh yeah, yeah. I think that's that's correct. Yeah. Richard Nixon in Disneyland 1955. There you go. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful when it set. opened. Look when at that. Opened. Full circle. An early adopter, um, a visionary, right? Okay, uh, we should probably leave there before we get too much more into Richard Nixon because um, we did really well. Um, <laughs> they're bringing him up, uh, Vaughn. Thank you so much for um, for taking us through that. That was really interesting, and I uh, hope it wasn't um, <laughs> too much of a busman's holiday for you. No, it's wonderful, gave me a lot to think about for my current chapter. So, thank you. Well, uh, from Vaughn, from Toby, and from myself, Simon, thank you very much for listening, and we'll have another episode for you in the near future. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.